It's important, whether you're here in person or at home watching this or listening to this, have your Bibles open. We're going to cover a lot of real estate of the Bible today. We're going to look at Acts chapter 25 and Acts chapter 26. And we're going to do all of that in one message, I hope. And so here we go. I want to talk to you. I want you to do everything you can to really pay attention to what I'm going to tell you. And particularly right now, because this is so important. So is everybody looking at me? Everybody paying attention? I see a few of you not looking at me. I'm waiting for you. All right, now I got you. I really want you to hear this. God has made every single Christian unique. He has gifted you uniquely. He has given you spiritual gifts that are perfectly suited to accomplish and to fulfill the life of purpose that he has for you. If you feel as if your life has no purpose, well, first of all, I really do truly understand that. And I would encourage you, come to your creator, for God has never made anything or anyone without a purpose. He has a purpose for you. And whatever ways that God's purposes for you unfold, there is an intersection, a crossroads, where we all meet what Jesus made clear in the beginning of the book of Acts. Here's what he said in the beginning of the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So whatever your purpose is for your own life, because you have one, maybe you don't think of it very much, but you have a reason to be getting up every day. And what God's purpose is for you, those two can meet and where they will meet your purpose and God's purpose, where they will meet seamlessly, perfectly, peacefully, excitedly, joyfully, powerfully, will be when you testify of Jesus Christ. So how can you be a spirit-empowered, how can you be a Holy Spirit-empowered, faithful witness of Jesus? Well, that's the question that we're going to learn today, we're going to ask today, we're going to answer today, and we're going to do it by looking at these two chapters. And for the final time, we're going to see the great Apostle Paul, who is no different from you and I. He struggles like you and I struggle. He's going to stand before a group of powerful unbelievers. They're going to hate him. They're going to ridicule him. They're going to demean him. And ultimately, they're going to reject both Paul and his Jesus. But how will Paul testify of his Lord and Savior? Well, if you have your Bibles open, which I've asked you to do, and that means you're now in Acts chapter 25, I'm going to skim Acts chapter 25, so go ahead and feel free to be looking through it, or you could just listen to me, because I'm going to be very brief with this. There is a brand new governor in town. The previous one, we looked at him last week, Felix, he was fired 
He'd been fired by the emperor of Rome. He had done nothing but increase Jewish anger and rebellion because he was so cruel, he was so vindictive, he was so harsh with the Jewish people that finally the emperor got rid of him. Now you've got a new governor. His name is Portius Festus. We'll just call him Festus from now on. He is not wanting to make the mistakes of his predecessor. He's going to try to make everybody happy, and he's going to fail spectacularly. He goes first to Jerusalem, the city where the temple of God is. It's up on a mountain. And he's going to arrive and immediately discover that the Jewish rulers are still angry, they still hate, they are still upset over a man named Paul who's been in prison for two years. They want the governor to put him to death. Paul is in prison in Caesarea, that's a seacoast town along the Mediterranean, 65 miles from Jerusalem. And Festus leaves Jerusalem and he invites some of the Jewish rulers to go with him. And they go and they immediately, uh, Festus does, he immediately calls for Paul. They bring him out of prison and around, now you got to get the imagery. The Bible says ringed around, standing around Paul on the ground level, they're all looking up to the Roman governor Festus. Can you imagine Paul? He's got guys that want him dead around him. Just like a hungry pack of lions around a a lone wildebeest. And Festus begins to listen to Paul. He begins to listen to these Jewish men. And the Jewish men begin to rehash all of their grievances. And then it's Paul's turn. And Festus is clear. Paul is certainly an innocent man. But I want you to listen to this. It puts him in a very terrible predicament. You see, he needs the favor of the Jews if he's going to govern them. However, Roman law forbids the condemnation of an innocent man. So he asked Paul, Paul, would you be willing to go with me to Jerusalem to be tried there in the city? And Paul knows that's a rigged trial. And though he doesn't fear death, He knows God has told him that he would go to Rome, so he invoked a five and a half century old Roman rite, quote, I appeal to Caesar, meaning that now, because he's a Roman citizen, because he invoked that legal right, now his case bypasses the lower courts, now it goes straight to the emperor, and now the emperor will personally hear his case and try him. But now Festus, the Roman governor, has another problem. He has to write up a legal case. He has to write up a legal summary for the emperor. He can't just send Paul there without telling the emperor why. And he knows that there is no case, that he is innocent, Paul is, and somehow he's got to avoid the consequences of Felix, the former governor. How can Festus get him to the emperor with a legitimate case without being called before the emperor and deposed and fired? He just doesn't understand the Jewish background of the case. 
And so it just so happens, watch in chapter 25, that the king of the Jews, Herod Agrippa II, had just come to Caesarea. He just came to meet the brand new governor. And Herod is an expert in Jewish law. He's familiar with Jewish law. So Festus thinks, this is brilliant. Herod, how would you like to go meet Paul? How would you like to hear Paul defend his his case? And Herod says, yeah, you know, I've been wanting to hear about this, so that sounds good. And for the third time, Paul is called before a group of powerful men, and he has an opportunity to testify of Jesus Christ. And since a lot of what he's about to say, we've already deeply looked at before, now we're going to do something different, and we're going to move to chapter 26. We're going to look at the way that Paul testified. And what I'm about to show you are at least seven examples that can show us how to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. And here we go, chapter 26. Here's the first. Testify respectfully. You see, when you are talking to an unbeliever, do it with respect. Do it with kindness Do it with gentleness, and look at what Paul says in verses 2 and 3. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Now look at me for a moment, because you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I don't see the respect here yet. That might be because you really don't know intimately who Herod was. Herod, the man that is the king of the Jews that Paul is now speaking to, Herod had a grandfather, and his grandfather was the murderous Herod the Great. His uncle killed John the Baptist. His father killed James the Apostle. Yet Paul nowhere brings these sins up. He could have. He could have said, God's going to judge you, Herod Agrippa, for you have been surely a wicked king and your entire lineage has been mired and steeped in evil. He could have brought that up. Well, let me tell you even more. Herod Agrippa II is sitting there in Caesarea on that day with his wife Bernice. His wife, Bernice, everybody knew, was his younger sister. He married his own full-blooded sister. He was steeped in infamy. Yet Paul did not mention the moral flaws of the man. He did not mention the moral flaws of his family. Rather, he showed respect. Now, I want you to hear this, and I want you to think of this with me. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, Colossians says, making the best use of the time. So as you are speaking to non-believers, Christian brother and sister, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now some of us need to hear this. Getting into angry debates on Facebook is not the way of a godly man or woman. Fierce and angry and demeaning name-calling 
is not the way of a godly man or woman. Have you heard of Westboro Baptist Church? Westboro Baptist Church is famous for constantly appearing and trying to get on camera holding signs that tell gay people you are hated by God. He's going to burn you in hell. They hold signs about those who have abortions that you are nothing but murderers and God's going to murder you. They think they are testifying of Jesus Christ and they are not. See, church, what a lesson for us in this angry, divided world that we live in where all you hear is constant slander and debate. What a time for us, church, to be lights in a dark world. Testify of Jesus with kindness, truth, and grace. Well, what else do we see with Paul as he was a faithful witness that can encourage us? Number two, love well. You know what struck me all week as I was studying for this sermon? It was the genuine love that was in Paul's heart for this wicked, terrible king of the Jews, Herod Agrippa II. Look at what it says in verse 3. Did you catch this? He truly wanted Herod saved. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All right, now listen, I want you to be really honest with me. I don't want you to show your hands. That's not the purpose. I want you to just think about this. But I want you to answer it in your own mind. Have you in the last months testified to any non-believer about the goodness of Jesus Christ? Any time in the last months, have you told any non-believer about the goodness of Jesus Christ and your hope of salvation in him? Now, here's the other question, and I really, really, really want you to be honest. When's the last time you went to an unbeliever that you love and you said, I am begging you, I am begging you to listen to me? Have you ever done that? Have you ever pleaded with any non-believer personally, but literally pleaded with them? I'm pleading. I am begging. I am asking you, please listen to what I'm telling you. This is something you must hear. Have you ever done that? If not, why? Paul's our example. I beg you, Herod Agrippa, listen to me patiently. You know why he did that? And then I think I can help us understand why we might not do that. Paul did that because he knows. He holds the message of life. And if Herod rejects it, then Herod will be in hell, and Paul does not want anybody to experience eternal suffering in hell. Not even a wicked king of the Jews. And why we may have never pleaded with anybody, why we might never have begged anybody, because if you really want to be honest, maybe we really aren't that confident that we truly do hold out the gospel, the message of life. But if we are confident, maybe we have to be honest. Do we truly, truly love that person?
And I want you to think about this. If you came upon me, and I was on the sidewalk of Easton, and I had passed out from a seizure, and I was choking on my own tongue, and you walked past me, it did nothing to help me. And then someone came up to you later and said, did you love Tim Ackley? There's no way you could say yes. You see, if you have an unbeliever in your life, whether that be a friend, whether that be a person in your family, a coworker, and you do not tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, can you truly, honestly, before God Almighty say that you love that person? I've learned that you cannot give what you do not possess. You cannot give what you do not possess. And if we are going to love well, then we must have love deeply in our hearts. And if you have love, Romans 5, 5, that has been poured into your heart to overflowing, it will be nothing for you. It will not be shameful for you. It will not be embarrassing. It will not be demeaning for you to really go to that non-believer whom you love and beg and plead for them to listen to you because you love them. And when you go, number three, you're going to talk about God's grace. See, that's what Paul did. You know, the older I get, the more I observe that the majority of lost people, the majority of non-believers do not see God as loving them. Do you know that? Well, possibly, of course, you do. The majority of non-believers really do not see God as personally loving them. And I wonder if that is because maybe we, the church, who represent God. I mean, when's the last time that you sat down and literally, physically, face-to-face had a conversation with God? Do you not know who God is through what he has revealed in his word? Do you not know what God is like through his people? And maybe if the majority of unsaved people do not know that God and do not believe that God loves them personally. Maybe it's because we, the church, have not represented him well at all. In fact, seeing God as loving is almost invisible. It's almost non-existent for an unbeliever. But here's what they do see about God, that God is an angry, harsh, divine judge, and they have no hope of ever appeasing him. Yet the truth is that God is full of grace and where would we be without God's grace flowing to us? And Paul testifies about this. He said to Herod, verse 10, that he had locked up many of the saints in prison and I punished them often in all the synagogues and I tried to make them blaspheme. Can you imagine that? Here's a Jew trying to make Jewish Christians blaspheme. You know why? Because then he could put them to death. If he could get to the blaspheme, they could be stoned. 
And in raging fury, verse 11, against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. But I want you to see something. Look at verse 14. Remember, he's testifying to Herod. And he would not end on who he was before Christ saved him. He would always talk about grace. He didn't end with his sinfulness, though, for Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what's a goad? Well, you might find this interesting. A goad was a long spear that had a sharp point, a wooden spear. It did not have a metal tip. It had a sharpened wooden tip to it. And farmers used them. And that's what they would do. They would prod the cattle to get them moving when they're pulling a plow. And if they wanted them to turn left, then they would, they would prod in just the right spot. And then the cow would turn left. Turned right, you prod him in another spot. And every once in a while, the cow would kind of get sick of being prodded by this sharp stick and kick at the stick. And Jesus says to Paul, this is what you're doing. You're being like a cow. You're being like an ox. You're kicking against my prodding. You see, Paul, why are you banging your head against the wall? That's the modern way of saying it. Why are you banging your head against the wall? Why are you fighting against me? I'm guiding you towards salvation, and I'm going to use you for incredibly grand purposes in life. But you know what? And this is so important. Paul, to the very end of his life, was utterly convinced that he did not deserve the kindness of Jesus. You know what I find in America? You know what I fight in my own heart? Is that we truly believe we deserve it. Oh, we say that we don't. We're really good as Christians saying, oh, the grace and the mercy of God new every morning. But the way that we function, if we truly believe that we did not deserve the mercy of God, we would be far more humble than we are. We would be far more worshipful than we are. We would be far more repentant than we are. You see, all of us, if I can go out on a limb, maybe are not really where Paul was. God's kindness in the person of Jesus was so amazing to Paul. He called himself the chief of sinners. He talked of God's grace constantly. For Paul, grace was not just a doctrine. Can you hear this? Grace was not just a doctrine whereby God forgives our sins. Grace was a person. And his name was Jesus. And that's what we're going to see in the fourth. Here's the fourth example. Here's how we could testify of Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Jesus is the God of grace. He's the constant hero of Paul's testimony. Look at verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, let me tell you a little of my own story. Let me testify for a moment. On a very, very cold, wintry January evening in central New York, in my senior year of high school, this was 1984, I walked away from Jesus, and here's how it happened. 
I had never done this before, never in my life. But on that day, that Friday, we had a school dance. And earlier in that day, I asked my brother to buy me some beer. I had never really even drank beer before. But I was tired of not being like everybody else. And I hid that beer against the bus garage just outside the gymnasium where the dance was. And my best friend, Alan, and I, in the middle of that dance, snuck out drank that beer, got drunk, and came back in for the rest of the dance. What that did, that literally, what literally that night did, was for the rest of the school year, every single weekend I got drunk. And then in the summer, literally every single night I got drunk. And it started me on a path of drinking that had me traveling toward the very ruined life of my alcoholic grandfather. You see, the main reason that I went to Liberty University, which was nine hours away, the reason I went to Liberty University was because I knew my life was heading in a direction that I might never return from. I could not stop drinking, and I needed to get away from home, the influence of my friends. But I hated my freshman year at Liberty. I missed my three best friends, Alan, Artie, and all of our best friend, Kathy. And I made plans to transfer after my freshman year to a college that would let me get home to party with my friends on the weekends. It was a lot closer to home. Now, I want you to listen to the rest of this story. Jesus had other plans for me. And it happened like this. He's about to poke me with his sharpened goad. The very first day I got back home to central New York for my freshman year at college, very much intending to transfer to a closer college, be there every weekend. The very first day I got in an argument with one of my three best friends. And unbelievably, that one went and talked to the other two and all three of them turned against me and would not talk to me, literally would not even return my phone calls for the rest of the summer. Jesus took away my friends. And with no friends to come home to, I went back to liberty after all, pleading with God to change my heart. I knew the problem all along was really not my friends, I just wasn't strong enough to withstand their influence. The problem was my heart. I get back to Liberty University. This is the fall of 1985. Actually, 1985. It was 85. The very first day I'm back, I met a guy, Mike Redman, who would become my best friend. And then I met a guy, Roger Marr, and then I met a guy, Dan Van Dyke. And the three of us, Mike, Roger, and Dan, the four of us, all became best friends. We hung out together, and all three of them were godly men who loved Jesus, and they were the ones that helped me find my way back to the Son of God. See, it couldn't be clearer to me. Jesus took away my influential, unsaved, ungodly friends and replaced them 
with three friends who encouraged me in my spiritual journey. My testimony has the fingerprints of Jesus all over it, and Christian brother and sister, yours does too. And when you testify, take him to Jesus. He's everywhere. Number five, stay near the cross and the empty tomb. If you ever wonder, what do I say when I am testifying Jesus? Well, here's what Paul did. Here's what I would tell you to do. Just head to the cross. Head to the empty tomb. And look at verse 22. I stand here testifying both to small and great. He's still speaking to Herod. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. See, Paul kept the truth of the crucified and risen Christ at the very center of his testimony. Why? Because with his death, Jesus atoned for our sins. By his resurrection, we have the hope of eternal life. You cannot separate the two. You can't just talk about the cross and leave the tomb occupied. And you can't just talk about the empty tomb, but don't talk about the cross. It's the bad news that makes the good news so good. You gotta bring them together. They belong together. Why? Because everybody knows guilt. Everybody knows that they're a sinner. Everybody knows that death is coming from them. The very deepest part of them, they need to hear the message that Jesus died in their place to forgive them of their sins. Should they believe on him, they will, like him, be raised to new life and they will have life eternally. Christian brother and sister, declare that message. Be bold. The soul of the unbeliever needs it, though they may not want it. And that gets us to number six. Rely on God and be prepared for rejection. Look at verse 22. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here having that help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to the small and great. Now Christian brother and sister, can you look at me for a moment? Can you let these words get all the way down in your heart? and encourage you and strengthen you and give you boldness. Listen, listen to this. When you testify of Jesus, trust me, you are not standing there alone. You are surrounded by help. Jesus is there. The Spirit of God is there. The Father is reigning over you. The Father stands above you. He is pleased with your witness. The, st the Son stands with you. He's never leaving you alone. The Spirit of God dwells in you. He's going to give you the words to say that you never even knew you had. You see, all the saints in history will stand on their feet around you. Did you know that? When you testify of Jesus, maybe it's at work, maybe it's in your neighborhood, maybe it's at your school, when you stand up and you are bold and you tell of Jesus that all the saints in history are cheering you on. This is what it means in Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who 
for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And just like so many of those cheering saints who went before you, you're going to be rejected as well. And look what happens in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy, Paul. It's what they're saying. The new governor absolutely thought Paul was an idiot. And those were the final words of Festus in history. Did you know that? Those are the final words of Festus in history. There are no more words that are recorded that he said. And Herod was not very different. He said to Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, Paul, what are you thinking? You think you're going to talk me into this? But Paul's final example will stand true for you and it will stand true to me. And here it is, number seven. Pray. Pray. You know, when I'm sharing Jesus with anybody, I'm praying before, during, and after. And Paul directly appealed to Herod to believe on Jesus and the king rejected Paul's wish. Look at verse 29. And Paul replied to him, whether short or long, I would to God. That means I wish to God, I pray to God. that not only you, but also all who hear me on this day might become just like me, except for these chains. In other words, that you would be saved. And I'm praying for you, Herod. I'm praying for you, all of you power brokers that are listening to me right now. And friends, some of you here, you may not be saved either. And I am praying for you that one day, if it's tonight, amen. If it's tomorrow, amen. If it's a year, that's all right. Just one of these days, my prayerful wish is that you believe and you are saved as I am saved. So what do we do, Christian brother and sister? We pray, pray, and pray that God would save the people that we love. Now, I'm almost done, but I, I think maybe some of the best part is what I'm about to tell you. And so I would ask you to listen very carefully. I want to tell you what's happening in our church. We have a lady in our church who is boldly using Facebook to proclaim the gospel to all in her friend group. She's not just telling them about the gospel. She's exhorting them to respond in faith. We have a salesman who yesterday received an email from his district supplier that this man had now transitioned to a woman and gave him her new name and the pronouns by which that person preferred to be called. Now, the friend of mine in our church called me up and said, what do I do? I said, can you love that person? That person felt the freedom to tell you of a very moral decision that that person made. Can you tell them then 
of a decision that you made. You put your faith in Jesus, and he has saved you. He sent me later that night the email he sent back to his supplier. It was a, a telling of the gospel message in Jesus and personally what he had done by faith. And he asked, he told that person, I'm praying for you. We have a person that had a severe, serious health issue, went to the hospital, and every nurse and every doctor that came in, he shared Christ. How would he not know that that was a divine appointment, that God wanted him to suffer what he suffered, to be in the hospital for that moment, to be able to speak to the people that he spoke to about his Lord and Savior? We have a brother who works for a massive, literally international ministry, or co company rather, who is working on gaining permission to start a diversity, equity, and inclusion group to do a Bible study at work centering on the person of Jesus. We have a young lady who shared one day, she works right with her boss all day, every day at work, shared with him her faith in Jesus, encouraging him. He started to ask questions. See, all over our church, Christians are waking up and they are testifying to a desperately lost world. How do we do that? Well, here it is in review and we'll be done. Testify respectfully. Love well, talk of God's grace, focus on Jesus, stay near the cross and the empty tomb, rely on God, be prepared for rejection, and pray. And watch what Jesus will do with your testimony. You will have a story to tell. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the example of Paul who did all seven of these. Lord, thank you for him leading the way in a very difficult time of sharing his faith to people that wanted him dead, people that hated him, people that ultimately rejected him. Yet he did not back down from the opportunity. Father, would you rise up your people immediately rise us up, myself included, Lord, that we would testify, that we would love, that we would respect the unbelievers in our lives, that we would plead with them, that we would beg them to listen, that we would stay close to Jesus and show them what Jesus has done, that we would proclaim the cross in the empty tomb. Lord, that we would pray and pray and pray. Father, would you let us rise up. Let the Spirit of God enable us with boldness to share Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.